I want to start with my favorite topic, which is languages. Uh, and because both of you touched uh, on it, and it shows up in Caroline's work as well, because I know that. Uh, <laughs> she told me. Uh, <coughs> the loss of languages and the loss of knowledges. Uh, you're doing great work to preserve the languages, but they're still dying. Uh, we have languages that are stuck in time, which are not updated, so we lose those knowledges. We don't know how to talk about certain things. Uh, I'm probably pointing towards Caroline to be like, how have languages shown up uh, in your work in understanding empathy? In What is the sort of importance of uh, languages uh, in the theoretical aspect of it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the concept that I uh, touched upon very briefly uh, called epistemic injustice that happens uh, with in case of uh, autistic empathetic experiences and uh, empathy, understanding it as a concept. That concept is actually very helpful to understand also the things that you were talking about. It's about how we create knowledge, how we transfer knowledge, and the injustices that are in that. For example, that we don't have the words for, uh, for to describe certain experiences in certain languages, and that some uh, knowledge that is in these indigenous languages cannot be transferred to others through text and through future generations if they get lost. Um, so, yeah, that's my uh, perspective. Thank you. Do you want to add on to that? The biggest thing I have is is that we don't have words, and, and I talk about female anatomy. Yes. So in Hindi and Punjabi, so my first language is Urdu and Punjabi, we don't have a word for vulva and vagina, we don't have a word for menopause. So when women have issues surrounded that, um, then how do they go and communicate? But also it, it, it impacts their ability to work. So we know that in the UK, if we don't manage perimenopause or care, we're going to lose a million women in the workplace from all uh, ethnicities which is really disheartening for me because we feel that how are we going to break through the ceiling when actually the word doesn't have, the lexicon doesn't translate and we don't uh, have the ability to be able to support women. But the biggest factor is, is that when you have things like you know, cancers, so breast is chati, which doesn't really translate as breast at all. Chest. Chest. And so how does a woman go into the doctor saying, I've got an issue with her chest? Is that her chest wall? So we're missing cancers within our communities as well. Um, and that comes from the fact that I think language has to evolve and develop. So we are using English words in order to, to uh, supplement where we're missing the gaps in our in our language. And I, su I suppose the way that it's going to happen, as you were saying, Peter, is that we're going to then have indigenous languages lost because English will be the thing that takes over. Yes, and very much it's seen as progress. Mm. You know, it's presented as you know, like an access to education means yeah. you know, that you study in English, and by this fact you're losing you know, like your native language. Uh, I have to say that I'm astonished. Like, uh, usually my work is very nerdy, very small, presented to small audiences to see how it resonates with, with all of you and uh, the use of language, how it's manifested you know, in, in every sense. So I completely, you know, I, I'm so lucky to be on stage. <laughs> Isn't he the most <laughs> humble man? <laughs> But I think with the language issue is that sometimes I feel I don't need to use language because there are things like Giphy or there are um, GIFs or memes which actually cut through because they're so rich in information that as a doctor, I can communicate within seconds with a patient or a user because that will just go 
you know, that's the knowledge is passed very, very quickly within households and um, moving images is something that uh, we definitely need more representation because when I type in hijab doctor, somebody like me doesn't come up <laughs> uh, or even a, a black doctor and it's, it's so that doesn't even come up. And you think, well, that's pretty simple to ask, but images have so much wealth of information that even language cuts through very, very quickly. Um, so it's got to be a hybrid, I feel, of both of that. I don't know if Nick's in the room, but uh, we have to connect. Uh, yeah, no, I've already connected. And, like <laughs> and uh, bring you all in and do like a big project on just yeah. <laughs> questions, everyone. <laughs> Anyone? Yes. The mic's coming around. Just a moment. Thank you. Um, so I am Canadian and I studied a lot with indigenous communities back in Montreal where I'm from. And one of my teachers had taught me that the indigenous communities didn't want to either have their language written down or that they didn't want to share it with white people. <laughs> and it's fair. Um, and I'm wondering if that's something that you faced when you were doing your research. And what that was like. Um, yes, yes. I, th I mentioned building trust as one of the most important aspects of this work. And I can completely understand the experience of these people has been various. Uh, sometimes it do, does help us the fact that we are outsiders. We're not the settlers. We're not, you know, like a, in India, in, you know, like a, when we're coming, we're not the, the majority. In, in, in Canada, we're not, you know, the settlers which are coming there. We have completely different status which sometimes helps to kind of diffuse the situation. But it is a very slow process. You know, like, uh, that, uh, we don't, it's not something that you plan, that you have to work with deadlines. Uh, and that's why there are probably not many companies which do it, because it takes literally years. So a, lo a lot of the work which you're showing, to produce the actual work is the easy part. You know, that they get to the position that you can actually speak to them, engage with them, and do the work that takes most of the time. I, I would say 80% of the preparation is this. Uh, and again, you know the reasons why uh, why they would be hesitant to speak to someone because they had various different experiences which are not positive. So um, I, I I know this. Uh, there are some projects which were not completely because of this, because we couldn't get access to, you know, to the right information, and we wouldn't try to. I mean, like, uh, so we have to kind of rely on, on the local population. Thank you. Any other question? Oh, yeah, now we're talking. <laughs> the lady behind the... Thank you for such inspiring talks. Um, my question is for Dr. Arif. Uh, first of all, what amazing work that you're doing. and. I always think about women's issues, as we label them, right, or women's health, as, as you're talking about as well, talking to other women about it and empowering them with language, for example. But also as a mother of a son, uh, I think a lot about those conversations that we have with boys and men around the same issues, and I would love to hear your thoughts about that. So that's been a, a huge part of my work, because obviously as a mother of three boys, how do I empower them as part of my work? In fact, my 12-year-old edits some of my videos because he's able to get all the trending sounds, but it's starting those conversations early. 
and making sure that um, you talk about periods or you talk about menstruation or period products as if you talk about the weather. There is no shame attached to it from regardless of your culture and creed. I think as women, if we don't internalize that and say, oh, it's nothing, it's mummy's stuff, then that means that they're cut off from that conversation straight away. Um, and then as they grow older, you as a household develop your conversation. So it starts with the woman in the household, empowering the men and then knowing what women's boundaries are. So I fundamentally believe things like consent, um, you know, uh, having boundaries, um, uh, having respect for women starts within the household and, and that then accentuates further and further. The, the other thing I find with women's health is from ethnic minority communities is that we always feel that other people will do the education for you. Again, because of the lexicon issue that we have. And that is within our own communities, we need to be able to stop the patriarchy. We need to stop the taboos um, and make sure that there is no shame because there is unfortunately still so much shame attached. And then lastly, the issue that we have is that there is a lot of um, uh, mistrust of healthcare services. So women, will suffer with their own pain and symptoms, and that comes from lived-in experiences. So I, as a doctor of 15 years, will never understand a black woman's experience of, say, fibroids, because her lived-in experiences is that when she goes to A&E, and we've seen this through multiple data, is that her pain is ignored, or it's deemed that black women can suffer pain and are less of complaining too much, if that makes sense, because they're able to tolerate pain better, which is ludicrous. And unfortunately, that's come in medicine as well. So we've got to spin those narratives around and say, no, pain is pain, regardless of whether you're brown, black, or you know white. And we need to be able to make our pathways much better. So opening up conversations, recognizing lived-in experiences, and then stopping taboo and stigma. That's the only way. Thank you. Oh, I'm <laughs> uh, thank you all for a wonderful uh, session. Uh, my name is Kutada, and I run a media platform called Akhtar. And Akhtar is a Swedish news in Arabic, basically. <coughs> and uh, Arabic is the second biggest, most used language uh, in Sweden, if you don't know, since 2015. <laughs> and uh, Finnish used to be the biggest for 200 years. Hail, hail. Uh, Yay. <laughs> uh, and uh, I was approached, actually, by a, a pharma company, not from Sweden, because I work with a pharma here from Sweden, not to mix it, actually want to spread information exactly about what you were just talking about. And I didn't know anything about it, and uh, uh, they don't want to, they want to pay money to actually spread knowledge to the Arabic community. But then when I googled this uh, pharma company, and it's actually one, if not the biggest in the world, I got scared. <laughs> when I saw how much money they make. And behind that knowledge, there is actually a kind of an injection that women should take when they're having that. And here, where, where does come, and our public health care will not even have a meeting with me to talk about this issue, mm. just so you know. It's a very different, uh, uh, we are a very dev developed and smart and, and fast country, but when it's come to laws, it's, it's really, really hard. Where does here, like, I really want to do uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, this and spread this because I think now when I'm just looking at it, it's like my mother is suffering from this most likely and I don't know. And at the same time, it's like money comes into really account. You yeah. are doing it and you're fantastic. But like someone like me with ethics and language and money, so any recommendation? <laughs> 
we've had a lot of issues in England in regards to it always being under a woman's issue. And, and I think you said that really well. And so it's, it's women uh, talking amongst women. But this is a genderless issue. Um, you, you talk about your mother, and as a son, you care about her and her pain. And her gynae history is really important to you because if she's well, the household is well and the economy thrives. And I totally will scream that from the end of my lungs constantly until someone listens. Um, and so I think that it has to be fact that uh, men are just as part of the conversation as women are. So we are still behind in that because, um, unfortunately, I, do, I don't think we have enough men at the table when it comes to uh, women's health. Um, but also, as women, we need to be allowed to trust men to be part of that because historically, unfortunately, because the patriarchy is so strife, that we've been knocked quite a bit as women. So to have that trust is going to take decades. Uh, a lot of my social media content is actually consumed by Arab women because one, they see a woman who looks like them and they feel seen and heard and a woman that wears a hijab, I think that is still something that we need to work on in regards to getting equity as well, but also a woman that is able to cut through the noise in a way that it's, it's fathers uh, looking at my content about how do I talk about menstruation with my daughter. Um, and that comes with just saying, I'm here I'm proud and I'm, you're not going to shame me. Constantly I get more Muslim men who will come on my social media and say, oh, but sister, this needs to be behind closed doors. Why are you talking about this here? And I think that that's where the block button comes very <laughs> liberally. But you, we, uh, everyone of here will know the noise that is made in your field, in your community. Um, and so the knowledge that you have and you gain, never keep it to yourself, carry it on consistently. Because I completely believe that um, everybody, you don't know what you don't know, right? But the one thing about women, which is incredible, is that they share information. Men, women share, okay? <laughs> so if I have something in my clinic that I share about vaginal dryness or vaginal atrophy or you know, vulvodynia, guaranteed the woman will go home and share it amongst her friends. I'm like, did you know that Dr. Aris said there's vaginal moisturizers? <laughs> so I think that the, the question really is, is that how can we get all partners on board? And I think we've got to firstly say, this is a genderless conversation. I'm going to connect you later. Uh, <laughs> I want to bring that back to the money making. And well, you know, I, I think it's a good question. Economy. Also, you know, like, again, I run, you know, our studio is a private company. And I, I think the question of ethics is present in any, any work we do. And I think it's great that, you know, design is no longer seen like this mantra of the 70s of like a good design is good business. And that's why earning money means that's a good design. I do think it's reasonable to ask who does it benefit from this, and if every involved parties, you know, take, take have their share in the process. So uh, we consider this, and I suppose everyone has to kind of do their own accounting to see what is reasonable and what is ethically uh, acceptable. Uh, I don't have an answer for this, but I think it's a question too. <laughs> but thank you for bringing that up. Uh, last couple of questions, maybe. Scanning the room. Scanning the room. No questions? Oh, uh, oh there's sorry. a question there. Oh. Ah, it's coming around. It's coming. <laughs> sorry, I couldn't see you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Like, thank you so much. Like, I, I feel honored to listen to, uh, yeah. Never mind. thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I just have a silly question, and it's for Peter. I'm wondering, like, how can you go from a designer to like a really geeky <laughs> person who like, <laughs> yeah, do what you do? Like, why? Well, 
Um, why well, you know, yeah, I, why? I, I think it's the same answer like for everyone who gets the design. You know, why do you design? Because you want to bring some positive change to the world, I suppose. You know, like I think people get to, and uh, you know, I quickly noticed that when I'm being asked for commercial projects, that it's usually coming from the same answer: bigger corporation working on the identity, branding, producing another font for Latin, and that thousands of fonts already available. So I ask them, why do you need a new one? <laughs> uh, and then you get these languages which don't have zero choices. So, you know, if a designer want to make a positive change society, I find a lot more room in that area than <laughs> reinventing multiple wheels at the same time. So it's simple. I think it's the same motivation that everyone's doing. You just realize like uh, I can make a lot more impact with the work outside of the mainstream uh, design work. Th thank you. I, I meant it like not in a negative way, I assume. No, <laughs> no. I no, actually want to extend you. that question to Caroline. Why empathy <laughs> uh, as a subject of your research? Like, how did you get to researching empathy? Um, well, I, I've seen in my environment, uh, unfortunately, how much uh, autistic people are affected by the stigma around. Uh, that they cannot be empathetic while they experience empathy in daily life. They feel it, but somehow their experience of empathy is not seen. Yeah. yeah. Because I've seen your papers as well, and they're like super technical and geeky, and like, oh, she's talking <laughs> about this empathy. And then I'm also a nerd. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Last question, and then we're going to let you off for a short coffee break. Yes. Yeah. Yay. Absolutely, you can do too. <laughs> question is actually for Caroline. And I'm curious about if in your research you have found the more or most effective ways of teaching empathy or of creating more of a communal understanding and working towards, yeah, teaching, teaching empathy. That's the question. Thanks. Well, I want to start with saying I've not done a lot of research on that, but I'm starting like to get into that. So give you a few like teasers to think home, maybe yourself or discuss later. Um, what I've now been starting to work on is uh, the the benefit of stories and storytelling, uh, and specifically representation of stories uh, of voices that are often not heard, like the session before lunch, uh, there were three different sessions on that topic, um, because stories allow us to practice empathy, um, even if we then maybe at the beginning of hearing a story, you're like, oh, that, that experience is so different from mine, and then throughout, you can you can grow it, even though without, in a quite a safe environment, because you are... Um, um, you are reading or listening to a story and the kind of stories that we hear that helps us in practicing different uh, e empathy for different types of experiences. So if we hear the same stories over and over again, we also don't get the, the chance to develop empathy for more wider range of experiences. Thank you. That's a wonderful way to end and connect because everything's connected <laughs> by design. <laughs>